Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, suicide, and filicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On October 25, 1994, 23-year-old Susan Smith stood on an empty boat ramp in Union, South Carolina, staring into the murky waters of a lake. The cool night air washed over her as her burgundy red Mazda rolled into the lapping waves ahead. For the next six minutes, she focused on the glow of the headlights bobbing on the water's surface. But as the car sank into the dark water, so did the reality of what she had just done. Sleeping in the back seat were her sons, three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alex. She'd just sent her babies to an early grave. Susan watched as the car pitched forward and icy water filled the cabin. Her heart pounded in her ears. A sudden panic spread through her body. She turned from the lake and covered her ears, calling out in horror, Oh God, oh God, no! She thought about running into the water to rescue them, but it was too late. The car was already submerged. Susan took one gasping breath and jogged the 75 feet up the boat ramp. Cold oxygen pierced her lungs like daggers as she ran down the nearby road. Her mind raced, searching for the story she could tell. Something tragic, but which wouldn't make her a suspect. One that would gain her the sympathy she craved. A story that would bring her lover Tom Findlay, back to her side. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on convicted murderer Susan Smith, a young mother who, in 1994, drove her car into a South Carolina lake with her two sons trapped inside. Last week, we discussed Susan's traumatic childhood, her tumultuous relationships with the men in her life, and the letter that drove her to commit the unthinkable. 
This week, we'll take you through the carjacking story Susan told police and the nine days of intense media coverage that followed. And finally, we'll cover the death penalty case that captivated a nation. Around 9 p.m. on October 25, 1994, 23-year-old Susan Smith banged on Shirley and Rick McLeod's front door. The couple lived only a few hundred yards from the John D. Long Lake entrance. Susan had run to the first house she'd seen. When the McLeods answered the door, they were shocked to find a hysterical Susan on their porch, screaming for help. Shirley and Rick brought her inside and urged her to tell them what happened. Sobbing, Susan blurted out every parent's worst fear. A stranger had kidnapped her babies. The McLeods were stunned. They couldn't believe something this terrible could happen in a close-knit town like Union. They immediately called 911. Still weeping, Susan relayed a story she'd fabricated only moments earlier. A man, a black man, had forced his way into her car while she was stopped at a red light on Monarch Road. He held a gun to her head and screamed at her to drive. Panicked, she sped off towards the lake. It was there that he had her pull over and forced her out of the car. Susan went to grab her boys, but the carjacker told her to leave them. He didn't have time to linger and promised they wouldn't be hurt. Then he hit the gas. As she watched the man drive off, Susan collapsed onto the road crying, yelling to her boys that she loved them. But they were long gone. Rick had heard enough. He flew into action, jumping in his car to search for the carjacker and the boys. Shirley stayed behind to comfort their mother. She remained by her side as Susan made a series of sobbing phone calls to tell friends and family what had happened. After calling her mother, Linda, and stepfather, Beverly Russell, Susan finally dialed the boy's father, David. He dropped everything and rushed over to the house. When he arrived, Susan was giving her statement to Sheriff Howard Wells of the Union County Sheriff Department. Susan felt some comfort having Wells there. The sheriff happened to be an old friend of the family, someone she trusted, and he'd likely believe her alibi. When asked about the boy's abductor, Susan quickly came up with the most plausible suspect she could think of, a 30 to 40 year old black man. Before we continue with Susan's psychology, please note that while I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, I have done a lot of research for the show. Susan's made-up description of her son's abductor is hardly surprising. In fact, it's the perfect example of how a pervasive bias in the media can shape our ideas about race and violent crime. According to researchers Kristen Nicole Dukes and Sarah E. Gaither, Because minority groups are overrepresented in the media as criminal offenders, white individuals are, more often than not, portrayed as the victim. Because of this dynamic, mass opinion has come to associate people of color with crime and white people with innocence. Susan's quick decision to fabricate a black assailant probably wasn't calculated and was more likely an instinctual gut reaction. 
But even this semi-conscious choice demonstrates how pervasive learned racism can be. In a split second, she knew that describing the abductor as a black man would make her story more believable to those around her. And it worked. After hearing Susan's account of the abduction, Sheriff Wells wasted no time. Within minutes, police stations all over the United States were notified of the carjacker's description, and a search party was launched in South Carolina. Helicopters scanned nearby forests, while officers patrolled streets and highways. But after three hours, they had nothing. By midnight, the investigation's home base was moved from the McLeods to Susan's parents' home at Mount Vernon Estates. It wasn't long before the house was swarming with friends and family, and Susan effortlessly slipped into the role of grieving mother, relishing in their sympathy. Everyone closest to her had come to offer their support. Everyone except for one. Her ex-boyfriend, 28-year-old Tom Findlay, was the only person Susan truly wanted to see that night, and he was nowhere to be found. After filing for divorce from David, Susan was hopeful that she would be able to have a future with Tom, but instead of taking their relationship to the next level, he broke it off. One reason he gave for ending things was her children. He didn't want to be responsible for them. Susan was disappointed Tom hadn't rushed to comfort her like she imagined he would. It wasn't until the next day that he called to offer his condolences. But once she had him on the line, it wasn't her missing children that Susan wanted to discuss. She wanted to talk about their relationship. Tom stopped her. Now wasn't the time to worry about that, he told her. She needed to keep her mind on her boys. But Susan didn't, and when a group of friends from work came by soon after, she asked them when they thought Tom might come to visit her. They had no idea. Tom, it seemed, hadn't expressed any interest in seeing her at all. Susan was devastated, but she wouldn't be able to dwell in her disappointment for long. Very soon, it became clear her problems were much bigger than just Tom. The investigation escalated far beyond what Susan ever imagined. South Carolina authorities noticed cracks in Susan's story and quickly realized they weren't dealing with an ordinary abduction case. This was something far more complex. Within 48 hours, the FBI was involved. Federal agents first met Susan on October 27, 1994, and they immediately picked up on inconsistencies in her account. During one retelling of events, she told interrogators that she and the boys were happy and singing in the car before the assault. In another, she said Michael was being fussy. Discrepancies aside, the most concerning detail was where Susan said it all happened. She claimed the carjacker had accosted her while sitting at a red light at the intersection of Monarch Mills, and she insisted there were no other cars or witnesses around. But what Susan didn't know, and what police did, was that the traffic light at the Monarch intersection only turned red when there was opposing traffic. Essentially, without another vehicle at the intersection, it was impossible that Susan would have been stopped at the light. 
When this was explained to her several days later, she quickly changed her account, claiming she had the wrong location all along, just like the FBI agents suspected she would. But it wasn't just Susan's words that raised suspicions. She also struggled to maintain eye contact with investigators as she recounted her story. And to avoid answering difficult questions, she repeatedly broke down sobbing. But strangely, she was often dry-eyed during her outbursts. And when she did cry, she made sure the detectives could see her tear-stained face. They also asked if her breakup with Tom could have played a role in her boy's disappearance. Susan replied, No man would make me hurt my children. They were my life. This gave investigators pause, not because she denied their assertion, but because of her use of the past tense when referring to her sons. Why did Susan talk about her boys as if they were already gone? This telling detail aside, authorities knew Tom Findlay meant more to Susan than she was letting on. After all, they'd already questioned him, and Tom was honest. He told them about Susan's bitter and vindictive response to their split, and he gave the police a copy of the letter he'd written her only days earlier, the one that told her he didn't want children. As authorities narrowed their focus on Susan, David grew frustrated. He felt they were wasting valuable time better spent searching for his sons. As far as he was concerned, Susan was a good mother, and he had no reason to think otherwise. The police, however, did. During a press conference on October 28th, Sheriff Wells confirmed that neither David nor Susan had been ruled out as suspects. He had just planted the first seeds of doubt about Susan's story in the eyes of the public, and the coming media frenzy would only feed suspicions until Susan Smith would finally, completely unravel. Coming up, Susan Smith searches for salvation. Now back to the story. By October 28, 1994, authorities suspected 23-year-old Susan Smith was hiding something about the disappearance of her two sons. Police needed her to start telling the truth. They needed her to crack. So they counted on the media to make it happen. In an effort to get the word out about the missing boys, news outlets throughout the state and soon across America began covering Susan's story. It wasn't long until journalists descended upon Union, South Carolina, en masse, each eager for a heartfelt sit-down with the distraught parents. Despite their recent separation, Susan and David did interviews together, him struggling to maintain composure, her with tears streaming down her cheeks and fogging up her glasses. Their pleas for the safe return of their sons saturated airwaves and made headlines across the country. And accompanying each report was a sketch of the suspect. Within days, Susan's story of a gun-wielding black man swept the news. 
The media's constant reporting on the case fanned the flames of prejudice across America. Almost immediately, the Union Police Department was flooded with anonymous tips. Men fitting Susan's vague description were brought in for questioning. And white parents around the country used the abduction as an excuse to tell their children to be wary of black men. The search for Susan's imaginary black carjacker escalated racial tensions from coast to coast. Until, that is, police declared the young, white mother of two a suspect in her own assault. Soon, the media's focus on the grieving parents shifted, and reporters began poking holes in Susan's story. How could she let her assailant drive off without a fight? And what exactly did police find inconsistent about her story? Now, instead of pleading for the safe return of her children, Susan was begging the public to believe her innocence. On November 3, 1994, Susan and David appeared on a CBS morning show. Susan was pressed about her potential involvement in the abduction. She insisted how hurt she was to be accused of something so terrible. She went on to speculate that whoever took her boys was a sick and emotionally unstable person, a truth she knew all too well. By early November, the media coverage and unending questions from police were wearing on Susan. She found it hard to ignore the creeping depression and shame building inside of her. The spotlight she'd been under for the last nine days had intensified, and it wouldn't be long before she felt its burn. Sometime after her television appearance, Sheriff Howard Wells called Susan and asked her to meet him at a nearby church away from the prying eyes of reporters. Susan slipped away without telling her family. Sheriff Wells, after all, was someone Susan felt she could trust, an old family friend, not an FBI agent intent on making her life unbearable. Susan followed Sheriff Wells to a small room near the back of the church. They sat across from one another in folding chairs, sitting so close their knees touched. Susan realized this interview was different. His demeanor was stiff, formal. He was out of empathy for her. She could feel it. Susan's heart pounded in her ears as Wells laid it all out. Police knew she wasn't involved in a carjacking, and they suspected there was no black man responsible for her son's disappearance. Out of options, Susan searched his face for understanding. Her hands shook. She leaned in, and with a soft voice, she asked Sheriff Wells to pray with her. He wrapped his hands around hers and asked the Lord to reveal the truth. Susan dropped her head in her hands and began to cry. She was so ashamed. She pleaded with Wells to give her his gun so she could kill herself right then and there. When he asked her why she'd want to do that, Susan sobbed. You don't understand. My children are not all right. It was her first admission of guilt. And once she started, she couldn't stop. It all flooded out at once. 
her loneliness, her failure, that she'd wanted to die that night but didn't want to leave her sons alone, and how it all had just gotten away from her. When she'd finished, Susan felt a tremendous sense of relief wash over her. The lies were over. Her boys would finally be rescued from the bottom of the lake. It was done. But she couldn't have been more wrong. Following her confession on November 3, 1994, police arrested 23-year-old Susan Smith for the murder of her two sons. Just six hours before, she had appeared on television denying she'd ever harmed them. Sheriff Wells immediately dispatched divers to John D. Long Lake. He intended to locate the boys' bodies before telling David the truth about his sons. Wells had hoped that finding them first would provide some sort of closure to the terrible ordeal. But he needed to get to David before the press did. Within hours, divers located Susan's burgundy red Mazda protege, 18 feet below the water's surface. The car had flipped upon sinking, and the boys were hanging lifeless from the back seat, still strapped into their car seats. The divers who found them reported seeing a small hand pressed against the window. Unfortunately, reporters caught wind of Susan's confession while authorities scoured the lake. By the time Sheriff Wells had gotten to David, he had already heard the devastating truth from the news. But the crushing reality of his children's death would continue to haunt him far beyond that moment. The funeral for three-year-old Michael Daniel Smith and one-year-old Alexander Tyler Smith was held on November 6, 1994. Over 1,000 grieving people attended, and celebrities like Oprah Winfrey, Phil Donahue, and President Bill Clinton sent flowers. The brothers were buried together in a single white casket in the Smith family plot. Susan, their mother and murderer, was barred from attending the service. Instead, she mourned her sons from her South Carolina prison cell. While Susan sat in jail awaiting trial, the media kept busy speculating her possible motives. Now officially divorced from Susan, David went on shows like 2020 with Barbara Walters to support a death penalty against his ex-wife but it would be months until the courts made a decision. Susan Smith's trial began on July 10, 1995, but the heat of a South Carolina summer wasn't enough to deter droves of spectators from lining up outside the courthouse, hoping to see her pay for what she'd done. By that time, Susan was known the world over as a monster, a profile her defense attorneys worked hard to change. Their argument hinged on how her mental health had been damaged by trauma, namely her father's suicide and the years of sexual abuse inflicted by her stepfather, Beverly Russell. This, they hoped, would offer some insight into understanding Susan's state of mind. 
However, they claimed their intentions weren't to portray Susan as a victim, but rather to explain how a victimized woman had grown capable of committing such an unthinkable act. Because Susan had confessed, a not guilty verdict was off the table. Instead, sparing her from the death penalty was the only viable option. But to save her life, her attorneys had to prove she hadn't truly intended to kill her sons. Essentially, they argued Susan didn't commit murder that night. She committed manslaughter. The crucial difference, they told the jury, was that her actions weren't malicious. Susan wasn't the manipulative, deceptive murderer the prosecution presented, but rather a broken woman with deep-seated mental and emotional disorders that had gone ignored for years, and they had the expert witnesses to prove it. The defense leaned on the testimony of Dr. Seymour Halleck, a psychiatrist and University of North Carolina law professor, to support this argument. Dr. Halleck evaluated Susan in jail and concluded she suffered from unhealthy dependency issues, which caused her to make dangerous choices to gain others' approval. He also diagnosed her with brief intermittent depressive disorder, an atypical form of major depression that manifested itself when Susan felt alone. Dr. Halleck explained that when she was around people that made her feel loved and cared for, Susan didn't exhibit symptoms of a mood disorder at all. But when her relationships were threatened or dissolved, intense depression consumed her. Dr. Halleck explained that Susan battled this reality daily, and though she'd been placed on antidepressants, she was tortured by suicidal thoughts. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, about 60% of people who commit suicide suffer from a mood disorder like major depression. And while not all depressed individuals experience suicidal ideation, those inflicted with major depressive disorders, like Susan, are more at risk. In fact, it was Dr. Halleck's belief that Susan had intended to kill herself with her sons on the night of their deaths. But he surmised that when she was faced with the reality of taking her own life, a basic instinct to survive kept her from going through with it. While the defense painted a picture of a suicide attempt gone wrong, the prosecution leaned into a theory of unadulterated filicide. According to the state's case, Susan killed her children in an effort to maintain her relationship with her ex-lover, Tom Findlay. Several witnesses testified that Susan had mused over the fantasy of what her life would have been like without her children. And the state's attorneys highlighted Susan's lies, both to law enforcement and the media, while they searched for the boys. They reminded the court of how she appeared on national television, begging for her son's safe return, all the while knowing they were already dead at the bottom of a lake. Susan's demeanor throughout the trial oscillated between stoic and unresponsive to relentless sobbing upon the mention of her children. But when Tom Findlay took the stand on the second day of testimony, he and Susan exchanged a brief, if not nervous, half-smile. Then he laid into the details of their romantic relationship. 
Tom told the court about the Susan Smith that he knew, the kind, affectionate woman whose world seemed to revolve around her children. He also described the way Susan had seemed to unravel earlier that day on October 25th, the day of her son's deaths, and how he feared she was suicidal. He told the court that she'd been wrought with anxiety because she believed David planned to use a hurtful secret against her in their divorce. Tom pressed her to explain. She revealed that she was in an ongoing sexual relationship with her stepfather, Beverly Russell. The courtroom was stunned, cameras flashed, and it wasn't long before the salacious reveal made headlines and evening news reports throughout the country. Newspapers were flooded with speculation. Would the jury's knowledge of Susan's sexual abuse turned affair help her defense? Or would it tarnish her character even further and secure her a death penalty? After 12 days of proceedings and months of feverish media coverage, it only took two and a half hours of deliberation to seal Susan Smith's fate. On July 22, 1995, a jury of nine men and three women unanimously agreed that Susan had killed her sons with malicious intent. She was found guilty on two counts of murder. It wasn't her guilt that was on the minds of the people across the nation. What everyone wanted to know now was how Susan was going to pay for her unthinkable crime. Coming up, the court decides whether Susan Smith will be sentenced to the same fate she forced upon her sons. And now, the conclusion of the story. On July 22, 1995, after 12 days on trial, 23-year-old Susan Smith was found guilty on two counts of murder. The unanimous decision was handed down in front of a packed courtroom, none of whom were surprised by the outcome. In truth, securing a guilty verdict wasn't the prosecution's biggest obstacle. Susan had already confessed to killing her children. What the state needed to convince the jury of now was that she deserved to die for what she'd done. It was a polarizing decision that split the small religious town of Union virtually in half. Before her trial, the people of Union, South Carolina, generally believed that if anyone deserved the death penalty, it was Susan Smith. But as the details of Susan's tormented life surfaced, public opinion became more and more divided, and the once hard stance opinion for a death penalty became blurred. Many felt sorry for Susan after learning about the sexual abuse she suffered for years at the hands of her stepfather, Beverly Russell. So on July 27th, in an attempt to right a terrible wrong and save Susan from execution, Beverly took the stand during her sentencing trial. He offered a tearful plea to the jury, asking them to spare Susan's life. Beverly acknowledged how he subjected her to years of abuse, and then read from a letter he'd written Susan only a month before her trial. He read, 
I want you to know that you do not have all the guilt in this tragedy. Beverly claimed that his stepdaughter's crimes were not just her own. The years of trauma he'd inflicted on her were in part to blame for what had happened to Michael and Alex, and he believed he should shoulder some of that guilt. But while her stepfather felt responsible for Susan's downfall, her ex-husband was determined that Susan be held accountable. Jurors wept as David Smith took to the stand, mourning the future he'd never have with his sons. He told them through tears, all my hopes, all my dreams, everything that I had planned for the rest of my life, it ended that day. In 1995, a death penalty sentence could only be administered in South Carolina through a unanimous verdict. And though no woman had been executed in the state since 1947, Susan knew it was a very real possibility she would be. As she laid in her cinder block jail cell, she considered her options. If the jury decided to execute her, would she rather die by electrocution or lethal injection? Either, she thought, would be slightly less painful than living with the memory of what she had done to her boys. But the members of the jury hadn't taken their responsibility lightly. They all felt the need to deliver justice on behalf of Michael and Alex. They just weren't convinced executing Susan would be the best way to honor them. On July 28, 1995, the jury voted to spare Susan Smith from death, or more accurately, they voted to sentence her to a lifetime of punishment. They felt letting her die would have been too kind. In their opinion, she deserved to sit behind bars and live with the agony of what she had done to her children. Regardless of their reasons, Susan was relieved. She still had people in her life that supported her, that cared if she lived or died, and they were happy to see her spared. Susan herself felt like her mother wouldn't have been able to handle a death sentence verdict on top of everything else she'd put her through. David Smith, on the other hand, was still hoping for one. Even after the verdict was delivered, he expressed his disappointment to reporters on the courthouse steps. With Susan alive and his sons dead, he didn't know how he could go on to live his life. Essentially, he wanted retribution for their deaths, a completely understandable reaction, but one that may not have brought him the peace he was searching for. In a 2008 study exploring the consequences of revenge, researchers Kevin Carl Smith, Timothy Wilson, and Daniel Gilbert found that when given the opportunity for retaliation, subjects actually felt worse. This was because in order to exact punishment, individuals were forced to dwell on how they were wronged far longer than those who had no recourse at all. Ultimately, this only extended their anguish instead of achieving the closure they'd hoped for. And this, no doubt, would be true for David Smith. As much as he may have wanted Susan to receive the death penalty, the sentence would have brought years of automatic appeals and trial appearances for him as well, not to mention the continued press and legal fees he'd face as a result. 
hardly the cathartic release he was likely looking for at the time. Susan and David have only spoken once since her confession. He visited her in jail a month after her arrest, hoping for an explanation. But when he asked her why, all Susan could say was that she didn't know and that she was sorry, hardly the explanation or apology he hoped for. David has struggled with the grief of the tragedy for the last 25 years. On the 10th anniversary of his children's murders, he found himself on his knees, gun to mouth, praying to God to help him end his life. Thankfully, he found the courage in that moment to go on. In 2003, David remarried. He and his new wife had two children and started over in a new town. Although the life he has now is far happier than the one he experienced with Susan, David still mourns the loss of his sons. A picture of the two angelic toddlers hangs prominently in his dining room. Above all else, his love for them is still very much alive. Susan, too, has a photo of the boys displayed in her less quaint living quarters. Today, 48-year-old Susan Smith is serving her life sentence at Leith Correctional Institution in Greenwood, South Carolina. According to news reports, her days in jail consist mostly of prayer, work, and solitude. She's not one to socialize much with other inmates. Now incarcerated longer than she was a free woman, Susan Smith has struggled to live her life behind bars without scandal. Between 2000 and 2001, 28-year-old Susan was reprimanded for engaging in sexual relationships with two different prison guards. Years later, she turned to other vices for comfort. From 2010 to 2015, Susan received infractions for frequent self-mutilation and drug use, both of which could have been an attempt to self-medicate during her continued struggle with depression. In January of 2015, Susan wrote to a local South Carolina newspaper to express her frustration with how the media was still reporting her story. She opened the letter with a familiar defense, stating, I am not the monster society thinks I am. Susan insisted it wasn't her intent to kill Michael and Alex, that she was a good mother and loved her boys very much. She wrote, Something went very wrong that night. I was not myself. But out of all of the speculation that was made as to why she killed her sons, Susan was most hurt by the insistence that she did it for a man, a claim she insisted was so far from the truth. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Susan Smith, amongst the many sources we used, we found Susan Smith, Victim or Murderer by George Reekers, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals. 
like female criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream female criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Andrea Conway Kagi, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.